What's up guys, hope you're all doing well. Today, I have a very interesting episode. I sat down with Nicole from the podcast, True Crime South Africa, and we discussed the Krugersdorp cult killers. For those that didn't see my first episode on them, I interviewed a lady called Maritska, and she dated one of the Krugersdorp cult killers. She was a journalist that was covering the case, and uh, she ended up dating one of them. Crazy stuff. But um, <laughs> uh, today we're gonna be doing an update on where they are, and we're gonna do an overview of what happened, right? So we're gonna go into who they are as people, the crimes that they committed, and how they ended up committing those crimes. We're also gonna go into where they are now, right? Because a lot of people ask me for updates as to where they are, because we didn't really cover that in the first episode. So that's a lot to look forward to. Also, I'm sure you've noticed, and in the past few episodes, I've also filmed the intros here. I am in a new studio, right? And I've been building this place for ages, and it's finally done. We recorded the first episode. This episode with Nicole was recorded here, but one of the cameras failed. So next week, I'm gonna do a full studio tour to show you guys the place. It's awesome. It's such a beautiful studio. In my opinion, it's the best podcast studio in South Africa. And uh, yeah, I'm very excited to show you guys. But without further ado, let's get into this week's episode. I'm excited to just listen to a story today. Cool. That's going to be a crazy one. So <laughs> you're in for a ride. Yeah. So, I mean, we're, we're, today we're talking about the Krugersdorp cult killers. Yeah. And um, let me just read a little description about them before we jump in here. So, Krugersdorp is a small mining town in South Africa. And between 2012 and 2016, 11 murders took place. The murders were carried out by a group called Electus Padeus, which means chosen by God. These murders are known as the appointment murders and the satanic murders. The leader of Electris Padeus was Cecilia Stain. Cecilia managed to convince a group of devout Christians that she was a former high-ranking witch. She mesmerized them with her stories of the ritual abuse she had seen and endured and the danger she faced because she had fled the satanic church. She directed her followers to slaughter 11 people, telling them they were performing God's work. But Stain's real motives were revenge and financial gain. I mean, like murder and that kind of stuff is already, yeah. you know, it's like it's it's a creepy topic. No one likes yeah. to think of a life being ended, right? No. In in that kind of a way. Yeah. Um, in, in a way that these people did it. Yeah. And um, the fact that it's like I don't know why, but the satanic part I think freaks a lot of people out, right? Yeah. So. Yeah. Just to start off, lay the foundation here. Mm. Krugersdorp, from what I can tell, is quite a conservative place. Mm. Um, so. It's a very Christian place. Mm. And the people that live there, for some reason, I don't know why, but when I was researching, they seem to be very, like, on guard about cults and Satanism and rituals. They seem to, mm. like, I, I heard that, like they don't allow Santa Claus. Like they think it's like an occult thing. Okay. There was like another thing there. Spider-Man was another one. Right. Yeah. <laughs> it, yeah. It says here. So including Harry Potter, Spider-Man and even Santa Claus are condemned. <laughs> right? Yeah. Why do you think it is like that there? I mean, would you, would you have any idea? So I think, you know, a lot of that goes back to satanic panic, um, you know, which happened, obviously started in America in the 80s, late 80s, and really rushed up in South Africa in the 90s. And, you know, in a lot of the research I've done around satanic panic, it makes sense to me that although in America it went away, in South Africa it never really did. Um, because we do have such a strong... 
um, sort of church and faith-based community here. And in South Africa, it also it became quite politically focused. Um, you know, so a lot of the generation, uh, you know, there's generations of people going back in places like Krugersdorp and other small big towns that for generations have been almost brainwashed to believe or, you know, this this knowledge, if you want to call it that, has been passed down from their fathers, their grandfathers that, um, you know, Satanists are out there to steal our souls and, you know, in a place like Krugersdorp where there is a big Christian following. There's a big, let's face it, white Afrikaans following. Yeah. That's, I think know, it's it's predominantly a white Afrikaans town, or no? Um, so I think if you look at the proper statistics, you'd find, um, you know, that there's a there's a good balance between probably black residents and white residents. Um, but it, it is it is very much there are a lot of of, of white Afrikaans mm. people there. Um, you know, and often white Afrikaans people are very religious, or Christian, Christian faith based. So I think that probably has something to do with it. Um, the the things that you mentioned, I don't know, you know, Harry Potter and the rest of that. That certainly came up with satanic panic. I mean, we had the occult crimes units in the SAPS. And they had what does that mean? So the SAPS is South African Police Service. Correct. Yes. So they would. They, they had a crime unit just for... For occult-based crimes, okay. um, which to my knowledge actually still exists to some extent today, but it's been improved, so it's not fo so focused on what they deemed satanic crimes at the time. And on their website at the time, which has since been taken down, but I have a screenshot of, they actually mentioned interests in certain things like that, you know, um, not necessarily Santa Claus, but... Um, movies and books that could be considered occult-ish, mm -hmm. like Harry Potter and that sort of thing. Because of the witchcraft. Um, yeah, being yeah. damaging. Um, and, you know, as we went through the 90s and the early 2000s, and in a lot of churches it still happens, you know, pastors would stand up on a Sunday and give lists to their congregations of things that they should remove from their houses that, um, you know, could turn their children to Satanism. Um, and, you know, we, I giggle about it and it, it's, it's a, it seems a bit silly, but sadly, when I look at those, the lists, you know, when they, they say to look out for behavior in your kids, that could also very much be a sign of depression. It could be a sign of abuse. It's really probably just a sign of a really struggling child or a child just trying to find their identity in the mm. world. You know, and because of all of this, people became, um, you know, very much had a negative focus put on them. Um, and I think Krugersdorp is one of many towns in South Africa where that has sort of stayed behind under the surface. Um, you know, it's not something you see when you walk in. Not every single person in that town is talking about these things, but it's... It's something that bubbles under the surface, and when a set of crimes like this happens, or anything else that where there's occult claims, it comes right back up again. Mm. Um, you know, and we're really one of the only countries in the world where there's that peak in satanic panic every single time an accusation of that is made. You know, other other countries in the world seem to have like dismissed that, which was quite interesting. Have you actually ever been to Kruger's Dorp? I haven't. No. You've never been. Well, 
Maybe, and I mean, obviously now I live in Cape Town. Um, you know, first sort of 30 years of my life I lived in Joburg. So maybe when I was younger, you know, mm. but not not that I can remember going there, no. So I actually went to Krugersdorp um, about a year ago okay. or so. Uh, and I interviewed Maritzka, okay. uh, who was also yeah. involved. She was a journalist that was covering the case and mm. she lives in Krugersdorp and she fell in love with one of the killers, uh, LaRue, LaRue's stain. LaRue. LaRue stain. Yeah, correct. Um, and, you know, I, I didn't, it seemed like just like a normal town. Yeah. But when I was speaking to Maritzka, she was saying that, like, there must be something in the water. <laughs> because <laughs> Krugersdorp, it just seems like weird stuff happens there. Yeah. Right? And yeah. it's like, I don't think it's a very big population. Mm. But for the, for the size of the population to the amount of weird stuff that happens there. It just, like, doesn't seem proportionate. Mm. So, I mean, there's there's been the Krugersdorp cult killings. I know there was, like, a, a, a massive... There was, like, a, a shoot going on there where, where there was a bunch mm-hmm. of models and yeah. there was, a, there was like, a gang assault on these, on these ladies. Yeah. And I've heard of, like, several other things happening there that is just strange, right? Yeah. Um, do you know why certain places breed more people like this like what is it is there something in the water do you know you know i think it's got you know as i've gone through my true crime journey i've come to understand that societal norms and um very much um economic circumstances and and historical you know circumstances around a place or a a group of people have a lot to do with the types of crimes Mm -hmm. that happen there you know i mean we can look at the western cape and understand how apartheid helped to form the gangs that are now such a huge part of our crime in the Western Cape. Huge, yeah. You know, so if we apply that to small towns where there is a lot of poverty there, um, you know, I think um, Krugersdorp is one place where there's um, an entire group of of white people who live very much. I've been to that. It's, it's right. in a small township called Munsieville. There's like That's a it. group of about 300 100%. Uh, white settlers. Oh, 100%. white. I don't want to say settlers. <laughs> but there's, there's Bad about, word. Yeah, there's about 300 um, yeah. white people living in a Correct. township mixed with, with black people. And before Correct. they were moved to Munsieville, mm. they were in a, a small section um, called Coronation Park. They were, it's, it was a park, mm. right? And they basically just set up camp there. And I think yeah. the... The, the council removed them and placed them into Mansiville now. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, that you do not have in every single town in South Africa. No. Um, you know, so there's that dynamic. There's, there's the poverty dynamic. There's the dynamic, as we've spoken about, of um, deep, you know, often when people are dealing with things like poverty, they will turn to religion, um, you know, so that mm. increases the religious side of it. And sadly, the more desperate people are, the more vulnerable they are. Um, and the, the more vulnerable they are to people like Cecilia's day. Mm-hmm. Um, also, you know, looking at um, often with poverty comes people turning to drug use. I was or, just about to say addiction, yeah. yeah. Um, so any sort of substance abuse could could play into it as well. You know, so I think it's all of those factors. And certainly if we look deeper, I mean, I think... Um, you know, there's many towns in South Africa where I've picked up there have been some, like, really also several different cases where you just look and go, what is going on here? Yeah. You know, and, I mean, Bredarsdorp here in the Western Cape is one where young women are just slaughtered horrifically. Um, you know, and you, you wonder why. It's why is a beautiful it more in that area? little yeah. mountain town 
Um, you know, but I think if you when you start digging down into into the substance use, into the poverty, into the and going as far back into apartheid and how people were forced out of the areas that they lived in, um, forced into places they didn't know, having to live in communities they didn't know, it really ends up going as far back as that. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and sometimes, and as in the case of Krugersdorp, it's just really concentrated in that one area. And we see a lot of vulnerable people in one place. And when we see that, the predators come in. I mean, the one thing that came up when I was talking to Maritzka mm. Is that how I say name? Maritzka. Maritzka. Yeah. Maritzka. Yeah. <laughs> I always botch it. <laughs> but um, the one thing that I picked up, and even now when I was doing research before this episode, was yeah. the fact that a lot of the people that were killed in this case were killed for like 1,000 rand, mm. 2,000 rand, yeah. uh, 16,000 rand. Like 16,000 rand is $1,000 for the international viewers. Like it's crazy to think yeah. that people were killed for that amount of money, right? Mm. Whereas, like, did they actually need to be killed for that? Why? Of course not. You yeah. know? Yeah. Um, I mean, no one ever needs to be killed. Mm. But the fact that it's, like, for nothing, yeah. for nothing. I mean, when I was younger, I had a, a soccer coach who was murdered, um, and they, the, the robbers stole his wallet. It had, like, 20 rand in it, right? So, I mean, it wouldn't have made it better if there was more, but it's just like of course. the I'd, desperation I'd, yeah. and the, the way that, the reason I say this is because it shows how desperate these people were and how brainwashed these people were, mm. right? Because I don't think they were really, I mean, were they, do you think they were killing for the money? Or do you think that, why do you think they were killing? So Before I we actually get into the yeah. characters and the, and the facts here. So I think that we need to realize that. I think brainwashing is a very, that there was a certain amount of brainwashing, but I don't want us to look at the word brainwashing and think that these people's agency was taken away from them. Yeah. Um, They're having, still very much to blame. Well, yes, and still very much acting out of their own desire to kill. Yeah. Um, you know, so when I, when I, I did a, a podcast on this and chatted to a psychologist who has quite a lot of experience forensically, and as I said to him, how do these people find each other? This was literally the next question <laughs> I was about to ask you. I was going to say, like, how do people like this find each other? Because that's a part of it. You know, <laughs> you want to believe that this was like a Manson family thing. But, I mean, even that has its own aspect. That this woman was controlling their actions and they really did not, all of their own thoughts were replaced by her thoughts. Hmm. And the psychologist said that the, that is not true. Essentially what it is, is these people already had existing pathologies within them. And tendencies, yeah. And, and tendencies that when they came into this group and whatever Cecilia was giving them activated that within them. Mm -hmm. um, so I don't believe that they were actually desperate, firstly. Let's, you know, all of these people were employed. They were all earning money. Um, you know, high school teachers, discovery, financial brokers, earning really good, decent money. Mm. Actually, the fact that you say that brings up, like, I, I heard that one of the guys was, uh, like you say, a financial broker. Yeah. And people that knew him were shocked yeah. by this. Yeah. So, like you say, a lot of them were not desperate. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think most of them were not desperate, which brings me back to, I believe it was never about the money. Um, it was always about... Cecilia having manipulated these people well enough, it was about her control. Mm. It was about her sense of control. It was about her seeing how far she could push this group of people. 
and these people allowing themselves to be convinced and partially convincing themselves that this was the right thing to do because they wanted to. Yeah. Um, you know, there there is an element of coercive control here and we do need to understand the, the cult elements of it. Um, but I don't think any of those murders were about how much money they could get. It was about how much can I control you? How much can we, um, you know, because basically Cecilia was telling them that this had to be done because she needed money for her health, otherwise mm. she would die. So there's a good possibility. Which we know is they, not really true now. But we do, we'll get absolutely. To that, yeah. I, I do think that they, they possibly believed that to a certain extent. Um, she was a very good, and still is a very good manipulator, very good liar. Um, but, you know, I don't ever think that any of them thought they were going to get really, really rich from those latter mm. series of murders that were supposedly about money. So, I mean... Before we jump into the things they did, right, I want to know who they were. Mm. So we know Cecilia Stain, right, was the leader. Mm -hmm. Who were some of the other members and what were their connections? Like I know there was a school teacher and she had two uh, kids that were part of the cult. And so, yeah, just just take it away. Like who were they um, and a little bit about who, yeah, their background. Sure. So, uh, you know, starting with Cecilia Stein, she was going back into her history. You know, a lot of people had spoken about how manipulative she was. And then there were also many people who said what a lovely, wonderful person she was. Um, you know, so um, she was she was married to um, I think she was on her second marriage, if I'm not mistaken, to a police officer, um, had two children with him. And then she became very involved in um, sort of the religious community, the Christian community in Krugersdorp. She met a lady called Ria Grunewald. Who was part of a group called Overcomers Through Christ. She created that, that group, okay. correct, yes. Um, so they initially just met at church, um, and then Ria decided to start this Overcomers Through Christ um, sort of offshoot of the church they were both originally a part of. And through this scenario, um, Cecilia met uh, Marinda Stein, who is no relation, just the, the, the same surname mm. as a, a coincidence. Uh, it's a common, common surname here. Absolutely, yeah. 100% in the Afrikaans community. Um, Marinda was a high school teacher in Krugersdorp. Uh, she had recently separated and was in the process of divorcing her husband. And she had two, at the time, small children, uh, Marcel and Larue. And what we know now is that Marinda was um, actively trying to keep the, the children away from her husband um, because she was already becoming quite aggressively involved in the church to the extent where she was taking on these things about removing the kids weren't allowed to watch certain cartoons and, you know, she was very much cleansing yeah. her house of anything that could bring evil, what she thought was evil into her house. So she was already already quite radicalized by the time she met Cecilia Stein. And um, almost immediately those two uh, bonded, became friends. Um, you know, through Cecilia's um, faking various illnesses, she claimed she needed a lot of help day to day. Um, so um, Marinda became one of the people that would care for her when she wasn't working. And at that time, I think Rio was still sort of on the scene, but trying to extricate herself. 
um, because she she could see that Cecilia was not who she thought she was. Um, and also Rhea was getting a lot of death threats and, you know, it was becoming quite dangerous for her, she realized. So that was when, um, you know, and then uh, pretty soon after that, Marinda, if you track her movements, she moved herself and her children closer and closer in proximity to Cecilia until they were staying in the same block of flats in Krugersdorp. Um, and then eventually she had her children. So um, were they kind of the two leaders? Like Cecilia was the leader and then Marinda yeah. was like the, the right hand woman. I would definitely, absolutely. Um, you know, and there were others involved. Um, so there was a, a young lady named Candace who was very good friends with Cecilia and who was unfortunately also, you know, badly used and abused and manipulated by um, Cecilia. She was able to extricate herself before any of this went down, which, you know, I'm sure she's very thankful for. Um, and there were, you know, at times there were people moving in and out, but the main players would be in the beginning was Miranda. Her kids were still very young at that time, um, but they would grow up around Cecilia, which I think is important. Um, you know, Miranda had essentially started to separate them from their father. Um, she told the kids that the father wanted nothing to do with them and the rest of her family. So very much Marcel and LaRue were growing up in this block of flats and their two main um, people that they were looking up to was Cecilia Stein and their mother. Their role models, yeah. You know, these were I mean, their role yeah. models. At that age, to see people like that, I mean, yeah. I'm sure you start picking up on a lot of their traits. and 100%, yeah. you know, not healthy at all. Um, and then we have, you know, through this, this church group, um, we saw... Zach Valentine coming onto the scene with his wife, Michaela. Uh, Michaela was training to be a pastor. They were both very religious and they had originally been part of Rhea's group. And soon there would be sort of a breaking away where Cecilia moved away from Rhea because she realized she could no longer manipulate her and um, took people with her, which would eventually become Electus Padeus. Um, and that would be Marinda, Zach Valentine, his wife, Michaela Valentine at the time, who would sadly become a victim at one point. Um, and then we had um, in between, again, as I say, we had people coming in and out. You had John Barnard. Yeah, so John Barnard joined quite close to the end. He wasn't an integral part in this operation, from what I heard. He wasn't to the extent that... And I think John Barnard was quite differently motivated. Um, unfortunately, John had been a lifelong drug addict. And that is another thing that Cecilia was on the police's um, sort of watch for because she had been known as a, as a drug dealer in the area for quite a few years. Okay. Um, even though her husband was a police officer. Um, <laughs> That's wild, man. <laughs> you know. <laughs> um, Obviously not a, a, a good one. No, clearly not. <laughs> clearly not. <laughs> uh, or one yeah. that was willing to look the other way. We don't know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Did, um, did he ever get into any trouble? No. So they, know, as far as I know, they did um, investigate him, um, which would be, you know, they would have to. 
And to my knowledge, he was never charged with anything. Yeah, there was never any internal stuff taken against him. From what I could tell, their relationship was pretty rocky for a while, though. Yeah. And they lived kind of separate lives. Absolutely. So he probably wouldn't have known much about what was going on anyway. And if he did, like, see weird stuff, he'd probably just ignore it. Yeah. Because she seemed quite weird. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, what is going to happen this week? <laughs> I think he was, um, he strikes me, and I mean, I don't know the situation at all, but he strikes me as the type of person and he was quite happy to look away. Yeah. Um, it looked like a marriage of convenience. Um, you know, he wanted his kids to grow up perhaps with a mom and a dad. And, but yeah, very rocky relationship there. Um, and so John Barnard came on the scene um, through Cecilia's drug sales. Um, so that's how they met. That's how they met. That's how they came to... And, you know, he wasn't very big on the religious side, um, you know, so this whole religious source that Cecilia eventually threw over everything um, wasn't really big for him. I think for him it was a lot more about monetary gain, mm. making sure he had regular access to drugs um, and often somewhere to stay because, you know, his, his life was quite vulnerable. He was, you know, all over the show. And she she let him live in her home, mm -hmm. um, you know. So that's John Barnard came on the scene, but he would be integral to the second lot of murders, the so-called appointment murders, um, in some of them because he actually introduced the 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 cult, the murderers to people he knew, um, you know, uh, uh, Peter and Joyce May uh, Joan Mayer. The Mayer couple were... They were murdered. Yeah. They were murdered and they were John Barnard's longtime bosses. Um, he'd worked for them for many years. Um, and when these, when, when all of them started kind of forming this group, right, this cult, um, did they spend a lot of time together? And how long were they friendly or kind of working together, hanging out together before they did their first murder? So we're definitely talking about years here where, you know, Cecilia knew these people. You know, the initial contacts that we can look at is sort of 2008 onwards. Okay. Um, so at least four years before the first murder that they were convicted of. Um, you know, there were other crimes during that time that they have been accused of, but it's never been proven. Um, so certainly a significant amount of time, at least at the minimum for most of the members, two, three years Okay. Um, before and actual murders took place. And what were they getting up to? Were they getting up to like weird stuff? Were they doing petty crimes or were they just kind of, yeah. So Cecilia had them on this, um, you know, thing that she was being chased by a satanic church. People were trying to kill her, you know, um, witches were chasing her for a soul. So a lot of the time they spent together were in these sort of um, protection prayer sessions that she had set up where she claimed on what she claimed were satanic high nights, um, where she claimed satanic powers were most uh, powerful and they were, you know, after her. So that was a lot of what they did was sitting around praying for Cecilia. Um, you know, she had lots of ways that she claimed um, she was being injured. She would have... Um, balloons with blood in her mouth that she would bite into. She would like into. pop it, like a blood bag or something. Yeah. yeah. Um, pretend to have seizures, all sorts of things, you know, to be raped by demons, um, all sorts of, you know, crazy ideas. So that was a lot of what they did. But really she had them on this idea that, you know, we are now on this, it was a, a battle between good and evil. Yeah. 
we're on the good side, they're on the evil side, and, you know, everything we're doing is, you know, in, you know, we're going after this this goal of, of winning, you know, protecting our souls and protecting um, Christianity and, and all of these things, you know. So, look, as far as I know, there was a lot of hard drug use. Um, by the majority of the members. By the majority of the members. Were the kids using drugs? Yes. The kids, because uh, yeah. they were quite young at this time, yeah. eh? How old were they? Marcel was just 14, 14. Um, when the first murder took place. And I think LaRue was a bit older. And hey? LaRue was older, so he was, I think, 16, 17, yeah. um, at least 18 by the time he was murdering. Because his first murders that he was at, actually involved with were the second half from 2016 onwards. So he was about 18, 19 at that time, okay. I think. Um, and what do you know what drugs they were taking? I don't know specifically. Probably psychedelics, um, if... Possibly. Um, I know that I think Tick was mentioned at one point. Okay. Um, but, you know, I, I don't don't know specifically. I don't know that the kids or any of the other members really became majorly dependent. John Barnard was already a lifetime time, yeah. in, you know, user, so he was already dependent. Um, so there was drug use and... Um, then they started, I mean, they just before the first murders happened, they started building car bombs. Um, I heard that they yeah. tried to bomb someone, but they were like spotted and they, they yeah. couldn't place the bombs, so they aborted, but they had a successful like uh, bombing a few Correct. months later. Correct, yeah. So they initially bombed um, one of the churches of the people that they believed were, I mean, it was essentially just people that had gone against Cecilia that she didn't like. These people had done no, absolutely nothing wrong. Just like other religious people um, that maybe didn't Christian want to follow her, who or... had spotted her BS yeah. essentially, you know. And I mean, most narcissistic people or you know abusive people like that, once you spot their nonsense, you are they then their you enemy. You become their targets, yeah. Um, you know, so she had start. They started to bomb. Um, they tried to bomb one of the churches. Um, at this, at you know, at first, that didn't work. And then they moved on to a sort of Bible study group that was being held at someone's house. Um, and one or two of those bombs actually did go off. It wasn't, I mean, when it's not, when I say bomb, it, they were quite abortive. It was like they were probably a, a very little small bit of a fire. Yeah. yeah, it wasn't, you know, something that they, they didn't blow so up. So no one car. was injured or anything like no, that? No, no. Um, yeah. But there was, I mean, there was damage to the car. There was, um, you know, a small fire that started that mm. was put out. Um, and then they just started to escalate and escalate and escalate, um, you know, until we led up to the, the first murders yeah. we know of um, that happened in 2012. So, I mean, can you tell me a little bit about those murders, mm. right? Who committed them? Why were the victims targeted? Sure. Yeah. So Natasha Berger, the, those first two victims were a young lady called Natasha Berger, um, she was, again, someone who had, um, she was quite good friends with Ria Grunewald. She was a, a um, Christian person. She, she went to church often and she had known of Cecilia um, and was sort of siding with Ria, um, which is what made her a target. Because at this point, you know, Cecilia was essentially starting to hunt down anyone that had sided with Ria because Ria had moved away from, from Cecilia. And um, Natasha Berger lived in a, in a complex with her, her elderly neighbor, Joyce Buernseyer. And what we know happened on the day was uh, Zach Valentine, his wife, Michaela, 
and Marcel, who was 14 at the time, um, arrived at the complex. Um, their plan that day was to kill Natasha. Um, but they knew that there was a good chance that they would have to involve her neighbor, who was very good friends with Natasha. So what they did was they arrived. Uh, Natasha wasn't home. They knew that they had to wait for her to come home from work. Um, Marcel was the one that, because she was a young girl, no one would suspect her. Yeah. So she approached Joyce, um, jo sorry, Joy, Joy Buenzaya, approached her at her security gate, explained that um, they wanted to surprise Natasha for her, her birthday. Would they mind if they left a, a present with her? Um, That's so sick, eh? Absolutely horrific. Um, so essentially, Joy opened up for them, um, believing that they were there to surprise Natasha for her birthday, because it was her birthday that evening. Um, they killed Joy, and when uh, and what they did was le they left a note. Before they killed uh, Joy, they made her write a note to Natasha asking her to come to her house when she got home and left that on Natasha's security gate. So when Natasha arrived home that afternoon after work, she saw this note from Joy in Joy's handwriting, went to her house and found Joy dead, and Zach Valentine and Michaela Valentine were inside. Marcel had gone to the car at that point, and Zach killed um, Natasha as well. So was Marcel, the, she was 14, right? Correct. Was, was, she, was she part of that murder? Did she, was she there while it was happening? No, so the, in that specific murder, she played the decoy in the beginning and then she went back to the car. And do you think uh, she knew what she was doing? Like, do you think she was told that we're going to go and murder these people? Yes. Um, she would admit in her evidence later that um, she was aware that people were going to get hurt. Um, I mean, at 14, I feel like maybe she might be the only innocent one out of that group. At 14 yeah. years old, I feel like... You're going to listen to what your parents say. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's a difficult one. Especially being growing, growing up in that environment and with those kind of people. Yeah. Um, yeah, you just become conditioned, I guess. Yeah. I yeah. can't imagine. I mean, if this is how she treats strangers, mm. um, often, and I know it's sad to say, but often people treat the ones they love the worst, right? Absolutely. So yeah. I can't even imagine. I'm sure you, you probably have more information on how the kids were treated at some yeah. point, but... Yeah, I mean, that's just horrific, eh? No, absolutely. Um, you know, and, and Michaela, um, who had sadly also become a victim, um, also claimed that she was not able to, um, or, or I think I think Zach actually relayed this information, that she was not able to be present while it was happening and she fled to the car. Um, and that, that was the, that was sort of the start of, of Michaela's downfall, unfortunately. And so the, these were the first murders, right? Correct, yes. Do they say anything about what was going through their minds at the time? Like, this was the first time they had taken a life. I feel like it's, it must have mm. been something that they discussed quite heavily in the trials. And Yeah, so Zach has never really admitted to having knowingly murdered anyone. Um, he claims that anything he did was sort of... He was doing things that Cecilia and Miranda told him to do, but he didn't know what he was doing, mm -hmm. you know. So from his his um, side, no. But Miranda, Miranda took a plea deal with the state, uh, or at least she pleaded guilty. 
Um, she didn't get less time, um, but she pleaded guilty and she agreed to testify in the upcoming trials of, of the others. And she said that Zach had phoned her, both Zach and, and Michaela had been on the phone on their way home from having committed these murders. And she claimed that both were really amped up. They were really excited about what they'd just done. Um, so that's afterwards? Just after they'd killed. Oh, my word. You would think, two. like, they might be trying to get hyped before. And then yeah. afterwards you realize what you've done. Well, but I guess adrenaline rush, you yeah. could maybe understand it. But I think what we also need to keep in mind is that um, we're getting this information from a multiple convicted murderer. Yeah. Um, so how much do who lied in her evidence in court mm. in other ways that can be proven? So we don't know how much... You, you can't know, take it on face value. On it. No, yeah. but the fact is... Zach carried on doing it. So clearly he didn't not like it that much to stop. (laughs) And I know in your podcast, you you focus quite a lot on the victims, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, I can't even imagine what they were going through when, I mean. Yeah, no, it's. Was it, did, did, did they, were they, did they pass away quickly or was this like a drawn out thing, did they say? So Joyce, uh, Joy, sadly, we know it was not quick. She, from the blood spatter evidence, um, we know that after she was initially stabbed, she attempted to drag herself to the phone to get help. Mm. Um, and Zach essentially walked behind her and then slit her throat. Um, so she sadly would have experienced... And I, and I think for her as well, you know, she was very much a grandmotherly figure to Natasha. And I think, you know, what really makes me sick, sick to my stomach is she would have realized in that moment that this was going to happen to Natasha when she got home because she had written that note and she had no idea. She thought that these people were there to surprise Natasha for her birthday, you know, um, Natasha, I think, was quite quick. Um, it was very much an ambush attack, um, you know, multiple stab wounds. Um, but it, it's always very difficult to say, mm. you know, unless someone really gets a bullet to the head, how quickly something yeah. like that would have happened. The reason I also wanted to talk about that was because, like, recently, and it's not in a weird way or a morbid way, but, mm. I, like, I think, I don't know why, actually, but I've been thinking a lot about death, mm. right? I think it's something we all think about and we try not to think about. It's something I think about every day, <laughs> I, Yeah, I mean, you, you kind of have yeah, to, right? Yeah. But, like, it's really been on my mind recently, and especially it's, like, 12 o'clock at night in my flat alone, yeah. lying in bed. I'm just thinking, like, about life and all of these, like, journeys we go on and all of these things we go through and all the people we meet and all these experiences and like, I always think about my parents, right? And I always go, how old are they? Like, I'm trying to, like, work out how much time we have, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. And, like, as you get older, those things really start to weigh more on you. Yeah, um, absolutely. And I just, and I always think, like, how am I going to live my life? Am I living my life the way I should be, the way I wanted to when I was younger? Like, am I staying true to who I am, mm-hmm. right? And it's such an unfathomable thing to think about the journey of life starting from an infant all the way to dying. And I just think to take it upon yourself to end that journey for someone else. Yeah. It's just, and like, I know it's so, co- it's quite common, right? Like people do die every day, yeah. but like just to take someone else's life and go, 
this is where your journey ends, yeah. I think is the sickest thing you can do. Mm. And it's yeah. not even for the victim. It's for the people that are left behind. Like, mm. 100%. That's the one thing I always think about is like, if, imagine if something happened to me or my yeah. mom or my dad yeah. or my brother. I'm like, how would you continue? Yeah. You know, and I've seen like I've got friends that have passed away mm. and you just see like no one that was around them, like the parents and the, like the like close family. Like, no one's the same after that, mm. you know. No, absolutely. And, and to think about it in like such a gruesome way that these people did pass. Yeah. No, it's it's horrific. It um, is, yeah. You know, and it's it's something I've had both. It, it honors me and it saddens me that I get to interact with a lot of um, victims' families through the podcast. And that's that has it's honestly made me think completely different, differently about everything in the world. Um, you know, uh, my views on life, on the world, on human beings have changed um, 100% since I started, um, you know, really working in the true crime field mm. and meeting people who's exactly as you said, their their normal dies with that human being because their lives are never, ever the same. And it doesn't matter how much justice they get. It mm. doesn't matter how long that person sits in jail for. Um, it does not change the fact that their entire universe has been totally swapped around, um, you know, swapped out for almost for someone else's life. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's it's... It is horrific. It's, um, yeah, it is. It's. I mean, I was talking to. Do you know who Gaten McKenzie is? Yes. So I had him on my podcast last week, or the the last episode, and mm. he. One of the things that he said recently is he, if he becomes president, he wants to bring back the death penalty, mm. which for me, I personally don't think it's going to solve anything. No. But um, yeah, it is. It's just. Uh, it's yeah. an it's an interesting topic, right? And I think it's, it's one that none of us can ever understand. Mm. Until we die. <laughs> Absolutely. And then, and then yeah. either you find out like all the things people have been saying about the afterlife are true yeah. or they're false. Like yeah. it's it's a very interesting thing. Have we been there already? Is this it? Like it's <laughs> just so it's yeah. It's, it's just such a curious topic. Absolutely. But, um, yeah. 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 So to move on from that, like what what was the next step? Where did they go from from after the, the first murders, right? What happened next? So uh, you know. Sadly, from the, the police perspective, police investigation perspective, what we know is those initial murders that happened in 2012 were very badly handled. Um, there have even been allegations that they were purposefully swept under the rug. Um, there are internal investigations and proceedings happening against members of the SAPS for poor investigations because they could have been stopped then already. Um after Natasha and Joy were murdered, the next person essentially on Cecilia's list was a pastor called Reg Ben Dixon. Um, so he was he was an older gentleman. I think he was close to 70 already. And he'd really retired from active pastor life. Um, but he was still doing, you know, small groups and um, lived with his, his wife, who was a similar age to him. And he had mentored Rhea Grunewald, um, and that is unfortunately how he became the target of Cecilia's rage um, because he had pointed out to Rhea that a lot of what Cecilia was trying to teach people about Satanism and 
how Satanism and Christianity work together in the world was not necessarily true or or healthy or helpful. Um, so he was sadly the next victim. And this is the first murder that... <clears throat> pardon me. No problem. <laughs> this is the first murder that uh, Marinda physically gets involved in. Um, so we know that it were, that murder was Marinda, Zach Valentine and Marcel went with as well. They dressed up as police officers, actually, um, and pulled up into Reg's driveway as he was arriving home one day. And obviously, the I think the, the police officer outfits weren't like spot on, but it was enough for him to put his guard down. And then he saw Marcel in the back seat in her school uniform. And uh, Marinda would later say that he relaxed when he saw Marcel. Because I think as an older man who had You would never think someone's going to bring a kid to a murder. 100%. Um, I don't think that even crossed his mind at that point. Um, you know, that he just saw two people and... Um, but within minutes, really, they had entered his property. They had um, savagely stabbed him and uh, left him to bleed to death in his garden, where sadly his his wife found him when she arrived home later on. That's horrific, eh? Mm. Um, and I mean, I'm sure the fact that they had the uniform on definitely mm. helped drop his guard. Absolutely, um, yeah. When did, they, they did another thing as well, which was they faked one of their members' death, mm. right? In what order was that? When did that happen? So in terms of the sequence of events that took place. Um, that happened after the next murder. Um, so maybe tell me about that one yeah, first then, sure. and then we'll get to the faking. So yeah. the, the next murder and the last murder to happen in 2012 was the murder of Michaela Valentine, who was Zach Valentine's wife. And um, as I mentioned, she was present at the first two murders, and she was also part of this initial group. She, like, was, she was one of the, the people that were like part of it, but she didn't want to be there, right? From what I could understand. Yeah, so so Michaela was obviously, I mean, her, her husband, Zach, had become very involved in this. Yeah. Um, and initially she was very involved as well, um, enough so that she was present at the first two murders and didn't go to police or stop it or mm. anything like that. Um, but from that point, she started to withdraw. And she told Zach that she no longer wanted to have anything to do with Cecilia. She thought that they needed to start withdrawing. Sadly, he basically played her. Um, he told her that he agreed with her and that they needed to start withdrawing, but they needed to do so slowly so that Cecilia didn't get angry. Um, and this is the point where we realize that these people had far more agency over their own thoughts than they would like to admit. Mm. Because he was quite capable of faking to his own wife that he believed Cecilia was a problem, while simultaneously, as we now know, planning her murder for Cecilia. It's weird because during those discussions between him and his wife, yeah. you would feel like he would be pointing out all the things that are wrong with Cecilia, right? Mm. And he's going, you know, she's manipulative, she's... Uh, you're trying to get us to murder people, like all these crazy things. And then, but he's just using like that as an ex like a way to manipulate her. But he's not realizing that all exactly. these, things, th these things that he's saying, well, like she's crazy. Maybe, maybe we should actually withdraw. 
exactly this. And the fact that he's able to say those things means he understands that they're he wrong. Realized that they were true. Yeah. He just didn't care. Um, you know, so for as much as he he boohooed in in court and claimed he was a victim of um, you know, coercive control and I was totally brainwashed, I didn't know what was happening. He knew. Um, he knew. Because so what we know now is um one morning he brought his wife Michaela a cup of coffee. In that coffee was sedatives. Um, he had prearranged that that day Michaela was going to be murdered. Um, his role was to make sure that she was out cold. And as soon as she had fallen back to sleep, he left. Um, Marinda and Marcel were parked around the corner, watched him leave, realized and that that was the agreed sort of go signal. Uh, they entered the complex, um, entered the the townhouse, and both Marinda and Marcel, who was 14 years old at the time, stabbed uh, Michaela to death in her bed. So, I mean, this is still all in 2012. 2012. So they were very active when they started, eh? Yes. Yep. And they did, it seemed like they did slow down a little bit. Well, that's what it seems like from the timeline of the crimes that they were convicted for. Yeah. Um, but like you said, there was a lot that they weren't convicted for. Or, yeah, that they've so been there was, yeah. accused of. So there was 11 yeah. murders that they were accused of. But we think there's how many? Maybe at least 20. At least 20? Yeah. There's a, there's a lot. Um, and do you know why they couldn't prove most of them? So it wasn't necessarily that they couldn't prove it. Essentially, you know, it, this has happened many times in South Africa, in the South African justice system, especially with serial killers. Once you've got a defendant for multiple life sentences... They just stop looking for the rest. They, they, even though they know they may, they may be able to bring you back to court and prove another 12 murders, it doesn't make any difference to how, lo how long you're going to spend in jail. Mm. So to use those tax rands to bring that guy back to jail, and I mean, each of these multiple trials cost many millions of rands, um, you know, is not... It's, it's sad but it's not the best use of our tax money. Yeah. Um, because these guys are going to be in jail for as long as they are going to be, no matter how many more murders mm. you add to it. Well, I mean, it's like last time you came on the podcast, we talked about Moses Satoli, right? Um, he committed kind of like almost a countless amount of murders. You can't take each one to, to trial. Yeah. I mean, it's 100%. just, yeah. it, it would just take too long. And like you say, just yeah. cost too much, which is so unfortunate because... Mm. Each of the victims deserves that. It's um, not even the victims. It's like the closure, right, yeah. for the family. It's mm -hmm. just, yeah. and even though it's, you know, the person did it. Yeah. I think the fact that they haven't been convicted of that specific murder leaves a very sad and bitter taste in the, the people that are left behind, right? Absolutely, yeah. I've, I've spoken to the sister of one of the guys that is believed to have been killed by them. And, and she said exactly that. She knows she's been told by police they did kill your brother. Um, she just wants it on record. She wants to hear them say it. Mm. She wants to, that's, that's all she wants is, you know, and she now knows, she realizes she's never going to get it. Um, you know, so that is, it's very difficult to work through. And then from there, so Zach... They faked his death for insurance money, right? Yeah, that was next up. Yeah, yeah so it says over here, Cecilia's next scheme involved faking Zach Valentine's death 
to get life insurance payouts of 3.57 million. So this was after he killed his wife, right? Correct. Um, Do you know how long after? Mm, 2015. Um, So at least three years um, between when Michaela was killed and when Zach Zach was, pardon me, they tried to, to fake his death. So this is, it was quite weird how this all went down. Mm. It's quite an interesting story. Would you tell us how, yeah, sure. you know, how it all went down? Sure. So very sadly, they, as they've done in many cases, they targeted a very vulnerable young man um, in this murder. It was, so essentially... They wanted to find someone to kill... That looked like Zach. So that they could use his body and show it as evidence that he was passed Correct. away. Yeah. So, so, yeah. so the, the the whole, for them, the whole point of this murder was to claim life insurance. Yeah. Um, Zach had been a life insurance salesman. Um, he knew how the ins and outs worked. Um, and they had taken out a very big life insurance policy of over a million rand. Uh, I think close to two million. It says over here, it says to get a life insurance payout of 3.57 million. Okay. So just over three and a half. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, a lot, I mean, seriously significant yeah. amounts of money. And they had made Cecilia Stain the beneficiary of that life insurance, um, which is- That is strange. <laughs> like, And that would already be a red flag in the, in the later investigation, yeah. you know, that some random person yeah. would be a beneficiary of 3.5 million rand. But so if after this had happened, like before we get into what happened, was Zach just going to go and give that money to Cecilia or was she going to be the beneficiary and then somehow funnel it to him? No. So she was, that money was going to go to her. For her, whatever um, she wanted to use it for. For her she, illness or. Yeah. And she'd also come up with the story that there was a, an orphanage that was housing the orphans of the children who, um, the, the parents had been killed by the satanic church and this orphanage needed funds, otherwise the children were going to die. Um, and this was allegedly something Zach sort of believed. It's also amazing how you can convince people to commit murders under the kind of um, roof of Christianity, right? But when you call it Satanism, it's like, whoa, we're not Satanists. You know what I mean? It's like they're doing the same things, but it's it's yeah. just, yeah, it's just odd. Yeah, I mean, that was one of my biggest things with this woman is she weaponized, expertly weaponized everything that people think is good and think is evil. Yeah, She knew exactly how the human mind in, in South Africa at least works. Mm-hmm. Um, and she weaponized that expertly. But anyway, back to so back to Zach, right? Yeah. Tell us, tell us what happened. So essentially, they they targeted this um, young man called Jared Jackson. Um, he was um, a gentleman who had uh, been on drugs for a while in his life. He was clean at the time. Um, him and his fiance, his fiance was almost nine months pregnant, um, and they were both really making a hard go at, um, you know, for the baby, clean, you know, living clean mm-hmm. and trying to rebuild their lives. Um, he didn't have a job, but he was selling like um, snacks and cool drinks and stuff. And that's how Zach met him. Um, and Cecilia met, met Jared um, and his fiance. And they... They, at one point, were living in a storage unit in the same flat that Cecilia rented out, that Cecilia lived in. 
Um, but at the time that they actually ended up using Jared, they were living elsewhere. So what essentially what happened was they had convinced Jared that they needed him to go on a trip to help them with something. So that morning, Jared had said to his fiance, um, I'm going to go help Zach with something, uh, Zach and Cecilia, and I'll be back this afternoon. And she never saw him again. And what we know now is they took, um, so it was Miranda and John Barnard in one car and LaRue Stain and Zach Valentine and Jared Jackson in another car. And Jared, of course, had absolutely no idea who he was dealing with yet. No. He, had, he had no idea that these people were murderers, <laughs> otherwise he wouldn't be with them. Yeah. Um, you know, so the, um, Jared, LaRue and Zach were in the front, in the driving in front, and they were driving towards um, sort of an isolated fishing town on the way to, to the Free State. Uh, they wanted to make it as though, so the idea was that Zach would be going fishing and he would die in a car accident and the car would get burned and the body would get burned. Yeah. And so this is essentially what they did. They drugged Jared while they were driving. They gave him a juice that had sedatives in um, and Jared fell asleep and LaRue from the back seat strand strangled Jared to death. I heard there was, like, from what I remember, um, there was quite a struggle that went on, though. It wasn't like a clean Yeah, death. correct. Let's see if it says it here. So it said, on the way, LaRue drugged and then strangled Jackson mm -hmm. on the R57 between Reitz and Petrusstein. Yeah. They parked Valentine's SLK in a, in a felt, placed Jackson in the driver's seat, and set the car alight. Correct. Um, did he... So it was that after they strangled him? Yeah, so he, he came to... So what a lot of people, up until this point, LaRue has never strangled anyone. Yeah. And what people don't realize about when you strangle someone is it's not two minutes and the first time they pass out, they're dead. Once you, they pass out, you have to keep strangling. You have to keep strangling them. Yeah. And I mean, I don't want to give anyone a DIY. No, of course not. But yeah. This is a mistake that, well, something that happens to a lot of people who attempt to strangle someone to death for the first time. When they pass out, they think they, they're they come and, and then they regain consciousness again. Because you can pass out after seven seconds Absolutely. of being strangled. And like you are definitely even, not dead. Yeah, if you <laughs> if you strangle someone in the right way, um, because I, like, I watch a lot of UFC and a lot of yeah. fighting, and a lot of those guys like yeah. literally you get into a chokehold you can be out within three or four seconds if you if you hit the right spot yeah because your brain understands lack, lack of oxygen i'm going to quickly shut everything down so that we can preserve the oxygen we do have to the vital organs so your brain forces you to pass out lay down so that it can protect itself mm. but you're not dead no and this is exactly what happened with jared um he became unconscious and went limp and larue thought he was dead um, and then regain consciousness. He hadn't loosened the tie, but he did enough so that he could regain, he regained mm. consciousness again. And then he had to, you know, there was a bit of a struggle. Um, but sadly, eventually LaRue did, um, manage to kill him. And LaRue was probably 18, 19 at this time, about, hey? About that age, yeah. Um, and then from there... Right. So they kill him. And what happens next? So they leave, they burn the car with the body inside of it. Mm. I'm assuming police find it. Mm. Um, what happens then? Did they ever get the insurance money? Did no. So, um, you know, they were, they were pretty 
poor at faking an accident because there was no, I mean, it was already suspicious when the accident investigators arrived on the scene. Um, a passing motorist had called the police and it was already suspicious because there was no skid marks. Mm. Um, you, they could literally see that, that someone had pulled it over and and set the car alight. So that was already suspicious. They may not have immediately thought this is someone faking their death, but they may have thought maybe this guy was robbed or hijacked and someone else set the car alight mm. and it wasn't an accident. Um, you know, so um, Jared's body, which at the time they thought was Zach Valentine, um, was taken to the mortuary. Um, you know, really sadly and, and horrifyingly, Zach allowed his entire family and all of his friends to believe that he had died in that accident. Um, his parents believed he had died. Um, they had just lost their daughter-in-law, Michaela, in 2012, which was, I mean, they were very close to Michaela, obviously didn't realize that their son had helped kill her. Mm. But now he is putting them through this additional horror. That's so crazy. Like, imagine being around your family yeah. and grieving someone's death. That you know you, that you, know you did it. And you, like, have to pretend to grieve along. It must be so weird. Well, thankfully, 90% of us can't do that, um, which is why we don't. Yeah, because you, <laughs> I mean, you have to be a psychopath yeah, to do that. 100%. Um, yeah, it's very cold. And I mean, Zach's parents would find out that he was not dead. Only the, ne the next time they saw him after that incident was when he was sitting in court. Um, you know, so where did he disappear to? So essentially they had a plan that he had been told he was going to be taken care of. You know, he'd, he'd be living um, in a hotel and then they'd make sure they got a place for him on a farm and he'd be well taken care of. They could change his identity and he could start his life again. This, but this sounds like someone that is seriously manipulated, right? Yeah. Because why else would you give up your life? Like I know like some of the other ones you said they were clearly, they were there, they knew what they were doing. Yeah. Why would he give up his life? So it's important to understand what was happening in the background as well. Investigations were continuing into the murders that had happened in 2012. So he didn't and mind, he maybe wanted to disappear. Yeah, so just before he faked his death, he had been called in to, along with Miranda, to uh, take a lie detector test. Ooh. Um, about evidence they had given around um, those first three murders. So he had very good reason to disappear. Okay. Um, that makes more sense. Yeah. yeah. But, you know, the, the story he... But there is an element... I think there was still an element of, of him being manipulated in the sense that he did believe that Cecilia would take care of him, but mm. she didn't. And what happened to... Uh, so what was the victim's name again from the... Jared Jackson. What happened to his wife? you know yeah so i mean sadly obviously that afternoon jared didn't come home she then went to cecilia and said do you know where jared is he hasn't come home um and cecilia acted like she had no idea what she was talking about um essentially sent the woman away and really for more than a year she had no idea she thought that it was possible that jared had just abandoned her um, because he didn't want the baby. But obviously now she realizes that wasn't true. Um, so she had to, I mean, shortly afterwards she gave birth. She had to go through that all alone. Shame. I can't um, imagine what that no, would be like. Absolutely hey. horrendous. Yeah. Oof. And did she stay clean? Do you know? As far as I know, yes. Um, so oh, I saw amazing. an article quite recently um, 
that uh, she had with the little one who's obviously now, you know, a, a young child. Mm. Um, and speaking about, you know, obviously how much she still misses Jared. Um, and and, fr- and from the looks of it, she's she's got a job. She seems to be doing well. She did get some assistance at the time, um, which was... From think, people in the community. Yeah, people who had heard the story and were just like, oh, you know. Let's help her. Yeah. So, yeah, she seems to to be okay. And then the final murders were the murder by appointment, the appointment murders. Mm. So the group after this then embarked on a series of appointment murders. Uh, they would set up an appointment within, with an identified victim under the false pretext. Uh, Marinda, LaRue and Barnard would typically intimidate the victims into handing over their bank cards. Marcel would then go to a nearby ATM and verify that the pin was correct once confirmed, the victims would be murdered, right? Mm. So basically they would find someone, they would set up an appointment. Um, what kind of a, an appointment would it be? So the original idea came from um, Zach having understood the financial industry, um, financial advisors, insurance brokers, that sort of thing. Um, and then also John Barnard suggested he thought it would be a good idea to use, um, to, to target people like insurance brokers and financial advisors who would ordinarily not find it strange to come to someone's house for an appointment. Yeah. Um, because that's what they wanted. So these are the types of people they started targeting. Um, Maybe not so <laughs> smart because generally when you book an appointment, people put it down who they're going to see. So it's like you're literally writing yeah. down the last person you saw. 100%. So they did have a um, sort of a way to avoid that. Um, look, the, the... Fake names or... Yeah, so okay, fake yeah. names. And then also locations would change while they were on the way. Okay. So they would set a specific location to meet, uh, a mall or whatever it may be. And then while the person was literally driving to the appointment. They'd say, oh, no, I'm at a friend or something. Yeah, they would phone okay. and say, oh, I'm sorry, my car broke down. Can you come to my house? And the, the person would go there. Okay. Before they started targeting those people, though, um, they, targe- they killed the mayor couple um, who were John Barnard's employers. Oh, okay, yeah, you mentioned them earlier, yeah. Yeah. And um, that was, they had uh, Marinda and, so this was actually, I'm just trying to think now, this actually, sorry, this actually would have had to have been before Zach faked his death because he was involved in one of the meetings. It probably, I think it coincided okay. in that same yeah, time. I, th- I don't think the order doesn't, it's not too crucial. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, because it, what, just at, at least one of the, the meetings with the mayor couple, he was present. Okay. Um, and sadly that, that couple were murdered in their home. Um, so the, the first, you're talking about the, the appointment murders, eh? Um, so the mayor couple. You're talking about the mayor couple. Yeah, okay, that yeah. was John Barnard's, yeah. um, Bosses, they yeah. would, they were before the, the so-called appointment yeah. murders. Yeah. So, but the first victims of the appointment murder or the first mm-hmm. victim was Glenn McGregor. Correct. Yes. Right? Yeah. She was 57, a tax consultant from uh, Ranfontaine. Mm-hmm. Uh, Marinda, Marcel, LaRue and Barnard met McGregor at his home on January the 27th, 2016, shot him and forced him to transfer 6,000 Rand into Marinda's account. Mm-hmm. He died from gunshot wounds. I mean, yeah. 6,000 Rand, like just bringing it back to that, like... Yeah. 6,000 Rand. How can you value a life at 6,000 Rand? Yeah. 
no, a few hundred dollars. Um, like it's... Yeah, um, it's it's. Um, sorry, I realized that I you you asked me earlier whether they actually got paid out that life insurance, and no, they didn't. They didn't. Um, so there was no. an investigation that would eventually coincide with the final arrests in in 2016, and they were not paid out okay. that money because um, the guy investigating from the life insurance company flagged it and realized there was something, something fishy yeah yeah, yeah. Um, sorry we're jumping around no it's okay yeah so, so glenn <laughs> um interestingly after i covered this on the podcast um one of the ladies who actually lived on the same property as glenn contacted me um who had lived on the same property and um, she mentioned to me that john barnard had actually also lived on that same property and that's how he knew glenn um so he had also brought this victim to their attention um, Glenn did taxes and Marinda claimed that she wanted her taxes done. And so John drove them to the property that day because he knew it. Um, but his biggest mistake was taking his cell phone with, um, because that was actually the murder. They left links. the cell phone. They didn't think. No, no. Um, jo John just took his cell phone with him when they went there on the okay. day. So when, when cops did triangulation, they could pinpoint that John Barnard's cell phone was, was at okay. Glenn's um, property the same day that he was murdered, yeah. um, which actually tied him into the murders. Um, yeah, so um, that was their first of the so-called appointment um, murders. And then I think next was Anthony Schofield. Uh, That's correct, yeah. yeah. So Anthony was a 67-year-old tax consultant, and he was the group's next victim. The foursome lured Schofield into their flat in Krugersdorp and forced him at gunpoint to hand over his bank cards and pins. They withdrew 16,600 Rand from his account, which is roughly like $1,000, um, and used his cards at various shops in, in Krugersdorp. Yeah. Schofield was eventually strangled and placed in the boot of his car, which was then abandoned. Mm. That's correct, yeah. Yeah, and that would be the MO for the next murder as well. Um, so so that that gentleman, and this gentleman was, um, Anthony was was strangled by LaRue. Um, and all of the next, next three slash last three murders would be committed in the flat that Miranda lived in. Um, and in her home? In her home, yes. Why did she want to do that? Or how um, did that happen? Why would... So yeah. they all lived in the same block of flats. Um, Cecilia lived in the same block of flats as Miranda. Um, so I think that was just a bit of a control thing. Mm. Um, and also, I don't think that they thought they were going to get caught. Um, you know, it's... How would they get the victims to their flats? Through, just under the appointments? Yeah, through okay. the, the appointment thing. So they, yeah. would, they would contact them. Um, usually LaRue would, would contact, um, yeah, yeah. claiming to want to either purchase some form of life insurance or get some sort of financial advice. Um, in most of these cases, like I said, they'd set up initially these guys, because a lot of these people are aware of the risks mm. and prefer these days not to go to the pe pe per person's house. I'm so, sure after this in the area, no one goes to anyone's no. house. Well, hopefully anymore. not in any area because no. it is very risky. Yeah. Um, you know, and would, they would insist on setting up uh, appointments at malls. Um, but when these guys, you know, so when Anthony was on his way to the appointment at mm. the mall, he got a phone call saying, you need to come to my flat. And he, and he did so. And this is like in the middle of the day, I'm assuming. Yeah. Yeah. 
Um, and some of them were early evening um, because that, I mean, that is something that financial advisors mm-hmm. do because people are working during the day. So they work in the offices um, later in the day. Yeah. They'll leave on the way home. They'll stop by someone's That's house or something. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. Um, and then Kevin McAlpine. Mm. Can you tell me about him? Yeah, so this was, well, I mean, they were all incredibly sad, but this one also particularly so because his wife, Keisha, was um, also heavily pregnant um, very, you know, soon, you know, she was about to give birth, um, about to deliver when he was um, also called out to a so-called appointment and um, murdered. And um, she also, you know, I mean, they'd just been married the year before. They were very much in the initial stages of their marriage. I mean, he was 29 years old, it says, yeah. Yeah. Um, and One year older than me, two years older than me. Yeah, 100%. It's, it's, it's absolutely tragic. Um, you know, never got to meet his child, um, just doing his job. And, and r- the real horrible irony is that Kishia had convinced him, his wife had convinced him that these would be his last few appointments as a financial advisor because he wanted to, he felt that once the baby came, it was going to be too, you know, because the the income from a job like that can be a little bit sporadic. Mm. Um, So he wanted to get a desk job that would um, give him a more stable income. And they had agreed as a couple that that would be what would happen. And this would be one of his last appointments. And Shame, sadly, yeah. it was his last ever. That is just awful. Eh? And I mean, like it says, yeah, it says. Um, so, yeah, it says similarly, Kevin McAlpine, uh, 29, was lured into the Krugersdorp flat on May 26, 2016, and forced to hand over his bank cards. 1,300 rand was withdrawn from his accounts. And I know I keep mentioning the money, but it's no, just like no. 1,300 rand. Like yeah. people overseas, that is less than 100 pounds. Yeah. That is less than $100. Yeah. Like it is so wild. Yeah. Like because the reason I'm mentioning it as well, because it's like they didn't even really plan these murders, it seems that well. No. They were just like, today we're going to murder someone. Right? They didn't go, let me maybe kill one person that has a lot of money. They were just like, no, we'll just do whatever we want, whenever we want. And if the person has money, it's a bonus. Like, it's so crazy to me. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you would think after the first time they had done one and realized, okay, we're not exactly getting the financial compensation we thought we would. Um, Let's not do that again. Um, Which, again, tells me that it wasn't about the money. No. Um, it was about far more than the money. The and money I mean, was yeah. almost a bonus to them. I heard um, Cecilia as well, like suddenly she had like quad bikes and she had like all these nice things at her house, yeah. right? She had motorbikes and s- yeah. nice speakers and playstations, and, playstations and some clothes, new clothes. Um, did any of them ever go like, we're like killing people. So did Cecilia actually kill she did, hey. No, never. No. So, like, we're doing all this for Cecilia. Mm. And, she, and like, she's supposedly dying or, like, mm. very sick and got all these demons after her. Mm. Um, but where did they think the quad bikes and everything were coming from? Did they, did they know that she was spending the money on this or did they just not even ask? I think that she did a very good job of keeping her life separate. Um, so she was very good at, you know, like the quad bikes would be kept at her parents' place. Um, you know, if 
she suddenly had a new PlayStation. Um, she it was would, a gift. Yeah, or whatever, it would yeah. be a gift from someone who um, wanted to help the kids. You know, so I think she was just really good at separating those two things. But she was, I mean, she was living a really, um, really good life. Um, mm. Didn't work a day in her life, essentially. And how did they eventually get caught? When did everything start to crumble? So with the final murder, which was a, a woman called Handy Latakhan, um, she was a real estate agent. And that was the final so-called appointment murder. Um, they had murdered Handley in much the same way that they'd murdered the, the previous gentleman and uh, um, dumped her body in a sort of stream and kids had found it when they were walking to school in the morning, which is just horrific. Um, and that's when at the time, so sort of shortly before that, Ben Boyce and Captain Ben Boyce, and who's now retired, he'd been put on the case on the, that sort of second set of murders. And he'd started um, looking at ATM footage because all ATMs have cameras. Uh -oh. And he would see the credit cards being used. Um, yes. Yeah. So when it, that was, I mean, he would realize, okay, this, this person's been, been found dead. Go back. When was their card last used? Um, you know, sometimes the, the wives who were waiting at home would see the messages come through and be like, why is he drawing this much money? Yeah. You know, only to realize afterwards it was them. Mm. Um, so... Essentially, the ATM footage was the first big break because although there had been suspicions already around Cecilia being very well known, Marinda becoming more well known, people not realizing that, um, not thinking that is Zach really dead. Um, you know, there were all these separate little pockets of suspicion. But what Ben Boyson did was bring that together by using the ATM footage to identify Marcel and LaRue. And they were the first two arrested simply from being identified on the ATM footage mm. um, because they'd worn beanies and hoodies and stuff like that, but they were still able to... So essentially, th there was another arrest before that that resulted in their arrest, but the prior arrest was a, an incorrect arrest that arrested a young man who actually had nothing to do with it. Um, but it was a lucky break because he knew Marcel and LaRue from the area. I think the, the person that was arrested falsely was Maritzka's cousin. Cousin. Correct. Yeah. yeah it was a weird, uh, bit of a weird <laughs> <laughs> coincidence yeah. there. Yeah, that's correct. Um, yeah, and Mariska, as a journalist, was actually on the scene of, of several of the appointment murders. Um, she was called out to, to report, mm -hmm. um, you know, so she had quite a lot of involvement there. It's a small town, so it's like yeah. everyone kind of knows everyone. Mm -hmm. I, it was not that small, I guess, but... Yeah, I it's a big town with yeah. a small town feel. It feels a lot more personal as well. And I, I know she said that she knew one of the people that was murdered as yes, well. And that's correct. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, Shane, there were a lot of connections for her. Um, and yeah, so essentially it, it was her cousin, you're quite correct, yeah. that had identified um, uh, um, LaRue and Marcel, and they were arrested. Mm. Um, both of them initially were very quiet, very cocky, very arrogant. Um, they had had it drilled into them that... They're untouchable. Yeah, you're untouchable. You've done nothing wrong. 
You've got God on your let side. The, yeah, yeah. 100%. God, you, we are, God has chosen us. Mm. Let us be this. Um, we are the chosen ones of God. But in addition to that, um, I think that they'd also built up, certainly in Marcel's case, she had built up this tough exterior almost as a necessity. Mm. So Marcel, once again, just to remind, it was... Cecilia's, no, uh, Marinda's, Marinda's daughter, daughter, the school teacher's daughter. Yeah. Correct, yeah. And at this um, time, she was probably 18? Yeah, I think she was getting close to 18 at When the there time. were courts, yes. yeah. Yeah, that's right. Um, yeah, so, you know, they were very cocky in the beginning, um, sort of like a, we're not, spe- we're not saying a word, mm. prove it. And Marinda was the shocked mother. She did an article, an interview with You Magazine, with her bed covered with stuffed toys that she claimed belonged to her children and she couldn't believe that they'd been falsely accused of all these things. And um, essentially what led to everything being pulled down was Ben Boyson, Captain Ben Boyson, going to Marinda's school, searching her classroom, finding ammunition in the oven that sh- that was not no longer used for home economics, but she had stored ammunition in that oven, and being given a a will that Marinda had left with the principal, who was her, her boss essentially, and in that will she essentially wrote off her kids, and made Cecilia the sole beneficiary of everything she owned. It's so weird. And so weird. <laughs> and when Ben Boyson saw that, he identified LaRue as almost the weak link that if he showed this to LaRue, he would make LaRue realize that his mother did not have his best interest no. in and and that is exactly what happened. He showed LaRue this this wool. And he turned on her in court. And he essentially turned around <clears throat> and and as Ben says in his colorful language, said, If you uh, if her, I'm going to talk. And from that moment... Just told everything. Told everything, took a plea deal with the state. And from what um, I can tell, he didn't really lie too much no. in his testimony. Um, he's actually yeah. one of the few where... That was quite credible. Yeah, where he actually took, um, sort of after that point, took responsibility for what he had done, admitted what he, what he he who he'd killed, mm. um, didn't... He, he did say that he did fear his mother, and I do believe that he did fear his mother. Um, she was very emotionally abusive, at times physically abusive. Mm. Um, in a way, these kids were groomed. 100%. I mean, they um, were. They yeah, Not in a absolutely. way, they were groomed. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. There's a huge, with the kids, there's a huge element of coercive control mm. here. Um, and you've got to remember that they've grown up with this exactly. lady as their mother their yeah. whole life, right? So yeah. who knows what was going on, how radical she was throughout their childhood. uh, She was radical as young as them being four and five years old. Well, there you go. So, So, you know, um, very much, you know, for the two of them, very sad the way their lives turned out. Yeah. Um, Doesn't take away what they did. No, absolutely. Mm. And legally, they still hold legal responsibility Mm. because they may have been able to prove that... that they were coercively controlled enough to hold an insanity defense, but they were not able to prove that, which mm. means that they had agency over their actions at the time, enough yeah. to hold criminal liability. Yeah. And um, 
so they got arrested, right? What were all their sentences? Do you know? Yeah, so LaRue was the, the first to be sentenced, essentially, because he decided to take the plea deal. Um, he got, he was sentenced for all of the murders that he pled guilty to, but he only got 35 years for each. And when I say only, um, that is very different from getting a life sentence, which is what the others got. A life sentence, You're you never are, getting well, no, um, you could still get out, yeah. but you It's always confusing to, <laughs> to me. <laughs> so a life sentence means that you are under the auspices of the Department of Correctional Services for the rest of your natural life. Okay. It doesn't necessarily mean that you will be in prison for the rest of your life. Okay. At 25 years, as you say, you become eligible for parole. Mm. doesn't necessarily mean you get parole. No. Um, yeah. So where LaRue benefits is... His sentence not being a life sentence means that from halfway through his sentence... He can apply for parole. He will be... There is no application for parole. Okay. He'll be eligible. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. Yeah, he becomes <laughs> eligible for parole. Yeah, yeah. Um, and he may or may not be given parole. Okay. Um, but after those 35, because all of those sentences are served um, concurrently at the same time and not after each other, mm. he only essentially serves 35 years. So at 35 <laughs> years, he gets released, and he is no longer a prisoner. Um, John Barnard also took a plea deal, got 20 years. Um, he recently passed away, yeah. eh? So sadly, he recently passed away in his sleep. Um, he would have been eligible for parole at 10, 15 years as well. Okay. So um, he was he had the lightest, really, mm, sentence. Yeah. yeah, because he wasn't... Um, he actually didn't physically murder anyone, and he didn't manipulate anyone. I mean, he was as guilty, you know, that he did horrible yeah. things. Um, but he was, he didn't physically strangle anyone. Yeah. Um, his, he played sort of accessory roles. Um, he was like, a lot of the time I heard he was like the watcher. And yeah, he would like 100%. watch to make sure no one was and coming. Yeah, or, yeah. And did the, help move the bodies and, and stuff like that. Mm. Um, which I say like it means, I mean, it, it's bad enough. But yeah. So that's why he got that sentence. And then the third one to plead guilty was Marinda, Marinda Stein. She pled guilty, but um, for her own reasons. So she didn't get a deal. Um, she got life sentences. She got multiple life sentences and um, probably as harsh a sentence as she would have got if she'd gone to trial. But the reason that she did not, that she didn't want to go to trial and she wanted to plead guilty was so that she could, that so that she didn't have to defend herself and bring Cecilia into a bad light. She wanted to avoid that. Mm. So she didn't want to, and she wanted to be able to um, testify for Cecilia, which is essentially what she did. Um, so she she was, she was played guilty. Mm. And I was, saw footage of her in court. She looks yeah. like a piece of work, that lady, eh? So I wonder this. Like, you look at her eyes and you're just like... <sighs> That's a killer. <laughs> so, I mean, yes, but also, um, if you didn't know she had done all the things that you probably she would did, yeah. would you think the same thing? No. But so now that I know it, and yeah. I saw the pictures, exactly. I was like, I can yeah. see it, yeah. It's, yeah, I mean, people have compared her to Daisy DeMalka, you know, which is a, a, a South African, a very old South African um, serial killer, the first female so-called serial killer in South Africa. Um, you know, but I always think that people say I looked into his eyes and you could just see, but I mm. always think you wouldn't know before. 
would you still see that? Mm. And to be honest, I have engaged with people that I've looked in their eyes and there's something different to them than other people. Mm. And you've got to wonder. It's weird because, I mean, I've yeah. interviewed many p- people on this yeah. podcast that have killed, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And a lot of them, you, I just can't tell. Even knowing, I can't believe it in a way. Yeah. Like hardened gangsters. I'm just like, you seem like such a good guy. But then you start looking into the background and where they come from and the reasons. And I also think there's a difference between like growing up in a really hard environment, Mm -hmm. right? Um, Like some of the areas in South Africa and growing up in a good environment and killing someone, Mm -hmm. right? There's a difference in the motive Mm -hmm. and the thinking behind it. Yeah, absolutely. in, In my opinion. Yeah. So when I see a lot of the guys that I talk to, I go like, what were the circumstances that led to it? Mm. What area did you grow up in? You know, how were you raised? Mm. Like, uh, were your parents addicts? Did they use when you were in, when when you yeah. were they were pregnant with you? Like, mm. I start looking at all those things. Domestic violence. Domestic violence, kind of abuse yeah. of your own. Yeah. Um, but yeah. Yeah, mm. sorry, continue. No, I absolutely <laughs> agree with you. Um, you know, it's a, that's a lot of the guys, especially in the Western Cape and in the gangs, have been desensitized to violence since the day they were born. Yeah. Um, and it's not their fault that, that that happened. But then, and also, there comes a point where you as an adult... You need to take... Lots yeah. of people grow up in really horrible environments. Yeah. Um, lots of people see domestic violence. Lots of people have... Families who mm. are all substance use, um, you know, have substance use disorders. And the vast majority of people will never take another person's life. Yeah. So there's that side of it as it's well. It's interesting because I just posted a podcast with Ellen Puckies, mm. right? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Did you, have you ever covered, covered that case? No, I haven't. Um, so Ellen, um, you know the story behind it, right? Yeah. So she uh, killed her son. Uh, her son was a, an addict and... He abused her and there was a whole lot of circumstances that led up to it that I don't even think we got to in the podcast, right? There was a lot to it. But um, she also had a really bad upbringing. And how do you feel about those kind of cases? Mm. Because I could see everyone was very divided in the comments. Mm. Um, Yeah, it's it's a tricky one because you can see in her, you can see that she's a good person. Of course. And that it's it's just something snapped. I mean... Mm. So what happened to, to Ellen, I think, is a is a good example of um, what they call battered woman syndrome, mm. um, which has the word woman in, but can apply to any gender. Yeah. Um, and this is where, when I first started my podcast, everything was sort of, you're either good or you're evil. Mm-hmm. Um, and now I realize that we're all just shades of gray. So much more complicated. Um, yeah, 100%. And, uh, you know, it's very rare that people are able to prove that years of abuse from any, uh, any person or years mm-hmm. of trauma from any person actually legally led them to feel they had no other choice at that time. Mm-hmm. It's rare that that happens, but it does happen. And as someone who has known and loved people who've been deeply caught up in substance use disorder, Mm. I can fully understand and I know exactly where Ellen found herself in that day. Yeah. Because it is a deep cycle of desperation where the person in front of you is still your child, but it is no longer your child. 
they are. They've become someone else yeah. because of the substance. 100%. Um, you know, and with her having an even longer background with that, she would have had probably PTSD from parents using, from maybe brothers and sisters. Mm. I abusing. mean, it sounded like her whole life was just she was around people that abused her and used her yeah. and raped her. And the people that she was raised by were drinkers. Yeah. The people that she lived with was that she didn't live with her family for her whole life. She was on the streets with drinkers and addicts and yeah. just the amount of abuse. I mean, I, I started crying during that episode yeah. because it was just yeah. to sit there and listen to someone that has gone through that much, yeah. right? It, it doesn't justify, no. obviously. You can never justify, but you can understand, 100%. right? Without yeah. judging, you can yeah. go, this was wrong objectively but at the same time you don't have to try and find blame right like she went through the system and they clearly found that there was enough reason to believe that she was not in the right mind because of the things she yeah. had been through absolutely that yeah. led her to that point 100 percent um and i think a very fair um ruling on on her in her but she's the one that's got to live with it so anyone mm. can say whatever they want to say in the comments um you know People who cannot see the possibility of them ever ever having doing it have never lived what she has lived, mm. um, and good for them. But her story was different. Yeah, because um, I also saw a lot of people trying to compare what they had gone through. Like someone was saying, like, oh, I was abused," but I, I, you can't compare. There's no hierarchy to draw. No, and you also um, can't compare because you don't know someone's capability mm -hmm. for handling stress. Right? Everyone's okay. different. We've all made up of uh, different <laughs> genes, you know, yeah. we all handle things differently. And especially the environment, a lot of people were saying that, that I noticed when the video, the podcast started doing better in America, mm. I started getting more of those kinds of comments. Okay. Whereas people that lived in South Africa understood the Cape mm. Flats and the places she's come from mm. um, and their That's history. Interesting, eh? yeah, yeah, I also found that interesting. It's because yeah. it, when the, I first posted the podcast, it did really well in South Africa. Okay. And all the comments were very supportive. And then it went over to America mm. and people that don't know the history um, mm. were not very supportive. Mm. But I mean, anyways, do we get through all of the, the convictions? So they were convicted uh, and sentenced. Yeah. So the only ones that ended up going to trial because they refused to plead guilty and admit their innocence was Cecilia, Zach and Marcel. Mm. Uh, Marcel hoped to, she eventually did admit um, that she had been involved in in the murders that I mentioned she was involved in. Um, I think she hoped to try and get a lesser sentence because of her youth. Um, the judge didn't seem to see it that way, though. Um, so he did give her a life sentence as well. Um, luckily for her, and I mean, if in any situation, if, if she's lucky, is, I mean, she is obviously very young going in. Um, she will be eligible for parole at um, 25 years and she'll still have a lot of life to live. Yeah. Um, where however culpable she was at that time, the victims that lost their lives have no more life to live. So, um, yeah, so all at this point in jail um, and, and convicted. And then... Where are they now? Because so I did the podcast about a year ago, right? Mm -hmm. And one of the things people commented was that we didn't really get into where they are now and what they're all doing. Obviously, I'm sure they're all still in prison. Except for John Barnard, who's passed away. Except yeah. for John Barnard, yeah. right? Yeah. So um, 
I mean, I'm guessing there isn't that much to update, but LaRue Le, um, Stain, the son of Marinda Stain, mm. I know he started dating Maritska mm. while uh, he was in prison. Correct. And sh- like I said, she was a journalist mm. that uh, was covering the case and uh, fell in love along the way with this killer mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, formed a relationship with him in prison. And yeah. I mean... There's yeah. If you want to know more about that, I guess go watch that podcast. Mm. But um, you mentioned something about Cecilia that she started dating someone recently in prison. Yeah, so there have been a few allegations that have come into my ear, at least, and maybe not made it into the media that um, she's continued to be very manipulative and tried to sort of hit up gangs and things like that while she's in uh, in prison. Um, but quite recently, we saw something come to light where. Photographs were leaked of her and a woman called Surya um, who was convicted of... Um, Murdering her husband. Orchestrating her husband's murder, yeah, in 2021. Um, and they, in the photograph, were dressed in civvies. They were firstly using a cell phone to take a selfie of themselves, which um, cell phones are banned in prison. Prison are not supposed to have cell phones. Oh, so they took this photo in prison? Yeah, they took that. So these selfies were sent to friends outside of prison um, because we know even though offenders are not supposed to have cell phones, they they do get passed around and it is contraband that goes around in prison. I've literally seen live streams from TikTok, on TikTok, well, of people in prison. Tabo Besta. I mean, Tabo Besta ran a, he he appeared at a social function mm. on Zoom from his prison cell in a maximum security That's facility. Close. But I'm saying, like, literally, so. like, while I was scrolling TikTok, you see, like, little dances, That's like, crazy. little challenges, and then there's just, like, Someone in Paul's Mall with a cell wow. with a phone, like bizarre. Yeah. No, I can, yeah, and and it's bizarre to us, but yeah, sadly it happens. So, but yeah, so these pe- the the photos got out. Yeah, the photos got out. It was revealed that her uh, that Cecilia and Surietta were in a relationship, um, and the articles were printed. Oh, the the photograph was print was was released in a digital article by a, a journalist, and an article was written about it. This, of course, then brought, um, you know, there was a, quite an uproar around it. And that's brought the relationship and the um, cell phone use and a, a couple of other offences to the attention of the Department of Home Affairs, uh, sorry, the uh, Department of Correctional Services. Um, and they have now split up Surieta and Sophia. They sent her to another prison. Yeah, they sent Surieta to another prison. Correct. Um, and... This was um, a relationship of the same sex. Correct, yes. Right? Yeah. So was this the first relationship, lesbian relationship, um, Cecilia had? No, no. No, so there have been, um, she'd never admitted it, but there had been um, other allegations of other people. There were allegations that herself and, and Marinda were I was just about to ask, yeah. involved um, romantically and some of the other women that had passed in and out of, of the group at, at points were also, they also made allegations mm-hmm. that there had been romantic relationships between them. Okay. Yeah. Um, for Syriata Brits, it seems to be, there There doesn't seem to be any history of um, same-sex relationships there, but um, yeah, it's, it, I guess it is what it is. Um, interestingly, Syriata was actually, actually seems to, I mean, you know, again, her, at her crime, which I've covered on the podcast, she was quite a manipulative person too. 
um, but in also also seemed in some ways to be quite naive. Um, so I think that Cecilia would have seen and, and a very attractive woman. Um, Sarietta is a very beautiful I woman. saw the photos, yeah, yeah she um, was definitely attractive. Yeah. So I think she would have been a real trophy to Cecilia. And, and Cecilia is like quite a quite a butch lady. Yeah. Right? Yeah. yeah. Um, got very short hair. Short hair. Um, yeah, not, not yeah. terribly feminine in, in the no. way she comes across. Um, but yeah, I definitely think she would have seen Sarietta as a good person, firstly like a trophy in prison. Um, I guess a tomboy would be a better way to describe correct. Cecilia. Correct, yeah. yeah. Um, yeah, more, much more leaning into a masculine side. I mean, yeah. every every man and woman has masculine and feminine energy. Mm. We just it's what we we choose to lean into. Yeah. Um. So yeah, she definitely leans into her masculine a lot more than than her feminine. Um. And I also think the the Sarieta relationship may have been quite strategic for her because. Sarietta still has family on the outside that support her um, and visit her. And so it's a way of her getting stuff from outside, getting, maybe. Yeah, yeah, and still having control over people on the outside. Mm. Um, you know, someone who loves control that much, it's like a drug. Mm. You know, she's got to keep doing it in some way. Um, you know, I have heard how true it is. I don't know that she's tried to um, organize hits on people from inside prison. Um, Maybe that's why she was connected with the gangs, you were saying. Yeah. It's very possible. Um, yeah, so that is, uh, she was very, very upset when Sarieta was moved. Um, look, having relationships in prison, romantic relationships in prison, is also against um, the, the Department rules, yeah. of, of Correctional Services um, guidelines. That's not allowed. Mm. Um, of course, it well, I think will happen. Is a romantic relationship allowed, but not a sexual relationship? But I guess a sexual... Is it the same well, thing? I guess it is really. Yeah, look, I mean, you, you're not allowed to say this person is my girlfriend yeah. or my boyfriend yeah. if you're But you're allowed person. to get close to other people, um, obviously. You're allowed to... Friendships and that sort of thing yeah. are allowed. Um, yeah, but essentially the guidelines say no romantic yeah. relationship relationships that may become sexual um yeah well thank you so much for coming and sharing um i think i said this at the end of the last episode as well (laughs) you're making my job very easy (laughs) because really you're you're a fantastic storyteller thank you um but i think other than that i can see you really care yeah about the work you do um and I can notice that because I also care, you know, right. and you can see when someone else yeah. has passion. Mm. Um, and really, I know all this information, you know, right? Mm. This is not off notes right now. <laughs> like this, but I'm saying like you've covered hundreds yeah. of stories yeah. and you can probably do this about almost every one of them, right? With a little bit of a refresher. With a little between. bit of a refresher. Yeah, but it's, yeah. I'm just saying it's like yeah. you don't often see that with people where yeah. they they really put time and effort into this kind of a space. I think a lot of people treat this as like a uh, like podcasts as a way to just like get famous or like get well known, right? But on the other side, there's also like people that really care about like mm. the art of it and like the storytelling mm. and making sure what they're doing um, has some sort of purpose and a meaning, right? And I know yours definitely does. Like you, you spend you. time talking about the victims. You have other podcasts as well, mm. right? Yeah. So, I mean, just tell people where they can find you. And sure, yeah, I'm going to mention it at the beginning as well. Cool. Um, but just awesome. for the people that made it to the end as a refresher. Thank you so much. Um, yeah, so the podcast True Crime South Africa is available on all the podcast apps, um, Spotify, Apple Podcasts. Do have a website as well, truecrimesouthafrica.com. 
And um, do you have another podcast that I recently started called I Lived Through This, which tells the stories. It's essentially survivors of all sorts of strange and wonderful situations mm. telling their own stories um, with me sort of chipping in to narrate every now and then. Um, yeah, and and you can find me on any of those platforms and then also my, my book, Samurai Sword Killer. Amazing. Well, guys, please check her out and... Um yeah, I'm so happy to be in this new studio. Like I said, we've been building it for ages. Yeah, and, it's amazing. Um, I can't wait to start utilizing more sections of the studio. Right now, we don't even have a wide angle on because we're, we're testing these new cameras out, right? But I've never done it for the full length of the episode. So wow. I want to make sure that they're working. So I put the backup cameras as well. But next week, we should have a wide angle as well. And uh, yeah, some cool things coming. But anyway, thank you so much for watching this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. And I will see you all very soon. Cheers.